The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, everyone. It's Steve Orleans, uh, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we are thrilled this morning to have with us uh, Peter Dutton, who is Professor of Strategic Studies and Director of the China Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. He is, a one, he is one of America's outstanding experts on the law of the sea and the issues that have emanated from the decision 30 hours ago from the, permanent, uh, from the arbitral tribunal in the China versus the Philippines case. Uh, before turning it over to Peter, I want to thank the Star Foundation for providing the funding for these calls. But Peter, it is wonderful to have you with us. We're not only thrilled that you're with us today, but we're thrilled that you are an active participant in the National Committee's Track 2 Dialogue with the South China Sea Institute on issues relating to um, exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but let me turn it over to Peter. He'll talk for about 15 minutes. He and I will talk for about 15 minutes. Then we've got a very distinguished group on this call, and we will open it for questions at that point. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. I know you're losing your voice because you've been talking straight <laughs> for 30 hours. Yeah. But welcome and many thanks. Thank you so much, Steve. That's uh, especially for the kind introduction. I'm I'm thrilled to uh, to be participating with not only today with the National Committee, but as a member to uh, participate in the uh, Track Two dialogues that we do. I'm uh, also uh, adjunct professor at uh, NYU and a member of the U.S. Asia Law Institute there. So uh, I I'm a frequent uh, visitor to the National Committee's events, and it's it's always tremendous to be able to support uh, the good work that you do. Um, so just by way of uh, uh, sort of some introductory remarks. Uh, I'd like to kind of frame a little bit uh, what this arbitral panel was all about and uh, and then sort of give some of my thoughts about the way ahead. Um, so first of all, what was this arbitral panel? Uh, a lot of people do get confused about it. Um, it is an ad hoc tribunal, um, something that was created specifically for the purpose of hearing this case. Um, it's created under the mandatory dispute resolution procedures of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So parties to the convention have the opportunity, in fact, the right to um, bring uh, mandatory dispute resolution procedures when they believe that there's a disagreement over how to interpret the provisions of the convention. Um, and in this case, the Philippines uh, brought the case because uh, it and China have had a dispute over how to interpret law of the sea and, and some aspects of the convention now for some time. And, um, and so the mandatory dispute uh, resolution procedures uh, were initiated now uh, a little over three years ago, uh, three and a half years ago by, by the Philippines. Um, and these dispute resolutions are integral, really, to the entire uh, uh, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea as a way of uh, peaceful dispute resolution uh, so that uh, non-coercive, non-forceful uh, dispute resolution processes can be engaged in uh, on any kind of uh, questions of interpretation of Law of the Sea. 
Um, so this all had to do with the with the uh, questions in the South China Sea. Really, there's two uh, two underlying issues um, it be, that it's important to mention could not be addressed by the by the uh, tribunal. They're uh, they're not part of it, and it's um, who owns the islands, and uh, how do you divide up the water spaces? Where do you put the boundaries? Those two questions are are fundamental problems in the South China Sea. But the but the um, tribunal had no authority because they're not strictly speaking um, uh, things that the convention could. Uh, well, that the convention allows the tribunal jurisdiction to hear, and the and the Chinese specifically would not allow them uh, to hear these particular issues when they acceded to the convention. So there were a number of issues, though, um, that that did come out. Uh, that I, it, it's worth highlighting just a couple. I'm not going to go into the details. I'd be happy to later if anyone wants to talk about them. But I think um, just sort of talking about some of the broad things is a good way to start. One had to do with um, the, the China's basic claim to having some sort of historical rights. They've never really been particularly clear about what sort of historical rights they have in the South China Sea. But, um, but the tribunal addressed this question uh, because there's a dispute between China and the Philippines. China basically has said that the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has to be supplemented by some respect for longstanding historical rights. And, uh, and, and the Philippines insisted that the, those historical rights were narrowly prescribed, that they didn't go away, but they were narrowly prescribed when all states uh, negotiated and agreed to the convention. And the tribunal favored the Philippine approach. It said basically that there's no legal or, or frankly even factual basis for China uh, to claim uh, historic rights to the resources in the waters in the South China Sea, um, either based on the Nine Dash Line or or on some other theory that doesn't directly uh, uh, proceed from from the convention itself. So, in this way. The tribunal strongly reinforced the UNCLOS system, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS system, and uh, and reinforced that approach over over historical approaches, the legal approach over historical approaches. The second uh, big area that they addressed um, was uh, how do we deal with the rights of islands to various water spaces? So every every piece of territory, no matter how small, it could be something the size of a desk chair, but it gets a 12-mile territorial sea around it. Um, but what about those? Those islands that are entitled to an exclusive economic zone in a continental shelf. And there's really been um, a lot of ways that different countries have interpreted the language of the convention, which requires that in order to get those full zones, that the island has to be either inhabited, uh, or, or rather I should say habitable, or um, it uh, needs to be able to sustain economic life of its own. And so how to interpret those two phrases um, was some, some a matter of some dispute. And the uh, tribunal clarified uh, that, first of all, what that habitability means is it must have a stable community of people, um, and uh, the economic uh, prong of that uh, has to mean it's got economic activity that's not dependent on outside resources or or that would be sort of purely extracted in nature, extractive in nature. So you can't just go mine guano on an island and call it uh, and, and, and get a resource zone from it. The whole purpose behind that has been long been that um, the purpose of resource zones is to provide for the coastal state. And so if there really is no way a, uh, a stable community could be provided for on a particular island, there's no there's no reason to give it a, a, a resource zone. Um, so um, 
So in this particular case, they clarified that it's got to be um, sort of uh, that what really what they did was they narrowed the number of features that could be considered full islands and explicitly said that none of the Spratly Islands is capable capable of generating these extended resource zones, exclusive economic zones or continental shelves because they can't sustain a permanent community, nor can they um, a, a stable permanent community, nor can they uh, engage in economic activity uh, independently. So um, the, the tribunal, essentially what it did was give a major win for all of the coastal states of Southeast Asia other than China. Um, and and this is, in my view, I've used the word breathtaking uh, about the, about the uh, opinion. It's really quite an expansive uh, opinion. That it is unanimous uh, is is a very important thing. Um, these are five very uh, five of the world's most learned uh, international law of the sea scholars. Many of them judges um, on the international tribunal. They they know what the law is. They understand the law. They understand how it was developed. So so it was a strong reinforcement of the um, not only of the the UNCLOS dispute resolution process but also a reinforcement of, of the primacy of the, of the uh, convention over other sort of um, peripheral uh, approaches to international law. I think a, um, a second point to make is that it um, adds great clarity to the law of the sea, right? So, so there's now a lot more certainty about what islands get resource zones and what don't. And we should talk about this again in the Q&A, but this is, this is an issue that I think all states are now going to have to pay careful attention to. Uh, this is not just about China or even about um, other countries in the South China Sea. A lot of countries are going to have to pay attention to that. But finally, I do hope that uh, the third point I want to make is that um, I do hope that, that this clarity will then lead to better negotiations for the parties in the future because, as I mentioned, they're the two key issues, who owns the island and how do you draw boundaries around them, um, is an issue that uh, the tribunal couldn't decide, so the parties have to um, in the end. Um, the tribunal did, I think, narrow the scope of what is legitimately in dispute. Uh, but that and that should serve for uh, better, improved negotiations in the future. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think it's it's a key that the future be uh, seen as something that is negotiated, not something that is um, imposed. And indeed, this. Uh, opinion is not something that can be directly uh, enforced. Um, its enforcement power is in the moral power of the decision itself, which I believe will have a profound effect. Um, the moral power of the legitimacy that comes behind this, against which countries' behaviors now in the South China Sea will be judged, is a strong yardstick of, of legitimacy um, that will, I think, have a major effect that over, over time and in the future. So even though in the short run, I don't think I think we'll see hardening of, of China's position, and probably, um, and, but, but but probably in in the longer run, we're going to see opportunities um, for uh, negotiation on a reasonable basis here. The last thing I want to say, and we can talk more about this bef uh, in the in the Q&A, is that um, is I think what we saw was. Um, very much about clarity in the law, but it was also um, a pretty striking rebuke of uh, of power politics, I think, because the there were five things that the tribunal um, specifically called China out on, um, f uh, specifically for uh, interfering, you know, physical in physical interference with um, oil and gas exploration, physical interference with fishing rights, um, the construction of the uh, artificial islands, uh, so what, what they described as wanton and severe. I, I 
think those are their terms, they might be mine, <laughs> um, uh, harm to the environment, and then repeated dangerous maneuvers by uh, Chinese law enforcement vessels. So there's a certain rebuke there uh, for, uh, for, for coercive measures at sea and a, a call uh, to, uh, to align policies more closely to, to the, the convention. But that does put China in a sense, in essence, uh, between a rock and a hard spot. I mean, on the one hand, there's this strong um, legitimizing uh, uh, legal opinion where the international community will uh, will have um, a, a lever of pressure to apply against China and its behavior. On the other hand, um, the, the leadership of the CCP has to be looking internally as well and understanding that there are domestic pressures that um, if China simply were to say, well, okay, we lost this and, and now we must be, you know, we, we must comply with it uh, without question, then, um, then there's obviously domestic ramifications that they would uh, most likely have to deal with. And I think both of those pressures are likely to be quite strong on China. So what does that mean for the future? I think that means um, the best path forward is, uh, is looking for the, 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 the common ground um, that does exist. And it does. There is common ground that exists out there between China and the Philippines, but also between China and others uh, with an interest in this case, and, and expanding from there to, uh, to help China through uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the spot that they're in between, uh, between two rocks. And so uh, with that, I think that's a good place to begin with discussion. Peter, that's a terrific introduction. Um, just to set a context um, for the discussion, if the United States had a dispute in the Gulf of Maine with Canada or in the Gulf of Maine of Mexico with Mexico over some rocks that were similar to these disputes could Canada or Mexico similarly bring an arbitration against the United States I know the answer but answer that in a in the context of how we should be talking about this as Americans since we are not party to UNCLOS yeah. Um, so first, uh, as as to, I mean, the, I don't mean to be picky, but the way you phrase the question uh, over rocks, well, no, right? Because, <laughs> but 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 here's the bottom line. Um, yeah, you, the United States is not a party to UNCLOS, and that's that is very much a, a failure of national leadership, in my opinion, um, in every sense, just plain and simple. Um, the, the law of the sea is a, is is something that, I mean, ironically, to 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 be frank, I think the United States is a is a profound defender of the law of the sea, but we do it from outside the institutional processes. Um, so so uh, can, our, can any questions regarding our territory or, or, or uh, resource boundaries be brought in? No, but neither could China's. The questions are about how to interpret the law of the sea um, convention. Uh, and, and we have we have not subjected ourselves to to that uh, kind of um, uh, potential because we are not uh, members of the of the tribunal. But I'm gonna remember I said that there's a point that I think we need to come back to about how the ruling uh, affects the interests of all states. Um, but the, I, think I, it, I, I, I was kind of kidding. But if a similar case was brought by. Canada or Mexico, they, it couldn't be brought because we're yeah. Not there just a party. isn't a way. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's your I mean, point. So we're not a party. So yeah, I, I yeah, think yeah, it's Important when we make these criticisms that we make it. We can, as Americans, do it. But the American government, I think, is should be somewhat 
constrained in its criticism since a similar case yeah. could not be brought against the United States. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, thank you. You reminded me because although I do uh, work for the for the Navy as a professor at the Naval War College, I am speaking in my personal capacity and and, and I'm giving my own personal views. But yes, I agree with you entirely. So so. Um, yeah, I think that the, the narrative that I've seen from the administration is a bit surprising because it focuses a bit too much on China's requirement to, um, uh, to, to abide by international law. Well, there's, there's two things to say about that. Number one, yeah, we don't have standing to, to poke a finger at China in this regard because we're not uh, parties to, to the United Nations Convention on the Laws. We, the United States, as a government, don't have the authority to do that, the moral authority. Um, but on the other hand, we as lawyers, I, I as a lawyer, feel like I do. I, not only that, I have a responsibility to be as critical of China as I am of my own government. Um, and, and it is a failure. It's a failure of leadership um, uh, for us to fail to uh, participate in the convention. Because here's the thing. Um, my view is that if you're going to um, abide by or, 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 or take the benefits of international law, you have to feel the pinch of it, too, because there's a little bit of both. Um, and, and China's, well, feeling more than a pinch at the moment. But, but, um, but, but here's where I wanted to get back to the opinion itself, because I actually think that the opinion uh, will, uh, will have an effect on the United States in a way that, that there will be a, a pinch felt. Um, so countries such as the United States and Japan, which have um, – uh, Japan in particular has an, an excessive claim around Okinawa-Shima, which is a small feature in the middle of the Philippine Sea, um, not not much bigger than a than a uh, than a broom closet. Um, you, that feature, Japan claims a 200-mile exclusive economic zone around, and you know international lawyers have long derided that claim, but um, and I among them. But uh, but now we've we've got a definitive statement, right? So Japan really is now on the wrong side of the law in making that claim. Well, the same is true. I suspect of many countries, including the United States. There are a number of islands in the Pacific Ocean that probably will not meet the definition of uh, the, the strict definition of what islands get a resource zone that this tribunal has decided. And bear in mind that, um, if I'm not mistaken, four of the five members of the tribunal are judges on the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. So, so in addition to being members of our arbitrators for this panel, they're also judges on the Law of the Sea Tribunal. So, so they really uh, shape the future of the law. And so the United States is, is, uh, is a country that's going to have to reassess, even from outside the convention, the effect of this decision from inside the convention. Um, I so, think the message is we should ratify. Yeah, that's me too. Strongly. Strongly. And, and have Let's an effect talk. from uh, from from the inside. Yeah. The, the, part of the, the decision which somewhat surprised me was that uh, regarding Taiping Dao, because I've seen so many pictures, mm -hmm. and you know, a, a, we had a visitor who gave us a bottle of water, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> which yep. was sold from Taiping mm -hmm. Dao. And so, what, yeah. uh, what about the substance of that part of the decision mm. and the fairness, since Taiwan has control yet could not be a party to the to the arbitration was and, well, a, and their response really... obviously and then talk about their response of having a patrol ship down there uh today yeah yeah so there's a um yeah there's a very interesting dynamic uh here in, in a number of different ways i was i frankly was surprised i, I um so so i in looking 
in my legal research um, at sort of hints at the direction that the court might go in um, or the tribunal might go in. I looked at the Nicaragua-Colombia case, um, and if there's any international lawyers out there, I'd be happy to discuss that issue. But uh, but in that case, there's some pretty clear clues that the International Court of Justice, different panel, but um, International Court of Justice would have made the decision that that the arbitral panel made because they they treated uh, features very similar so features in the Caribbean that are very similar to Taiping they treated them as rocks so it uh, it didn't surprise me in in terms of the law but what surprised me was that there really hasn't been a true consensus um, in in state practice about how to interpret the provisions about what's an island and what's a rock. And so the court pulled state practice back um, and and narrowly um, subscribed or circumscribed the, the circumstances in which an island can get resource zones. So it's quite an activist decision in that regard. Um, so so will it be respected in the future is, is another question. Um, and it may not just be China or Taiwan that objects to the outcome. Um, it's, it's entirely possible that the United States and Japan will object to the outcome as well. Um, in which case, um, the, you know, the, the, the clarity of that decision uh, uh, then is is uh, subject to some doubt. So I I wasn't surprised in terms of the law, but I was surprised that the, that the tribunal decided to go that far, um, knowing that uh, it might be difficult for other states to follow. Now in Taiwan's case, in particular, since Taiwan occupies um, Ituaba or Taiping uh, Dao, um, and uh, and is uh, you know, determined to uh, treat it as an island as opposed to a uh, a rock, a legal rock. Um, you know, there's there's another layer of concern there because now you've got um, countries that uh, will have a hard time um, accommodating the the ruling, that being China and Taiwan. And, and uh, I don't uh, I don't mean to wade into the difference of you know calling them both countries, but you get the point. That you have two entities now that will. Um, that will uh, uh, have a difficult time accommodating the decision with countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, now wanting that decision to be accommodated, uh, and then in the same physical space, there'll be two two particular uh, particularly different points of view. So that's something where there's going to need to be some some real um, work done on how to accommodate not only different interests and perspectives, but different activities um, uh, and, and how to bring those countries together to, to act together in a, in a way that's more joint than to uh, being pursuing their own narrow um, state interest. Uh, there's got to be something where there's common interests that are pursued commonly rather than um, the, the sort of private interests of each party that are pursued uh, independently. What's what's going to happen? Give us kind of a view of what's going to happen going forward. What's going to happen with U.S. Navy, you know, with Taiwan's, with the mainlands, with Indonesia, with mm. the Philippines, with Vietnam's? Are we going to see increasing tension? Are we going to see U.S. ships operate? I mean, some of the rocks, uh, some of the the features were fa- uh, that the Chinese have built airfields on were found not to even qualify as rocks. That's right. Which mm-hmm. means that the yeah. you know under the US there is no 12 mile uh limit 
and mm-hmm. the USN feels it can go and sail within 100 yards of those airports. Mm-hmm. Should yeah. we expect to see that? Um Personally, I don't expect to see that. Um, but again, I'm in my personal capacity speaking here. Um, and I want to say I have no special knowledge of what the, of what the plans are. Uh, so, uh, but I will be surprised. Of course, you know, there's going to be various calls uh, in the U.S. government to, you know, kind of uh, play the advantage home, right? To, uh, in other words, to, um, to to press the advantage that that, that the law has has ostensibly given uh, to freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. But my view is just because you have the right to do something doesn't make it smart to do it. Um, so so uh, I think uh, now is a time for restraint, to be honest, is my view. Um, now is a time for restraint by all parties. We, yes, we should expect restraint from China and Taiwan. We should expect restraint from the Philippines also. I, I think the best thing to do is to be humble in victory, and, and that's probably the best way that, um, that, that the Philippines could, could pursue uh, this, this outcome. I think that they are, frankly, but uh, it's the best way to, to pursue it. And finally, I think uh, restraint by the United States and Japan and India and Australia and others who have an interest in, you know, particular interest in freedom of navigation there is also called for at this time. I do anticipate the hardening uh, in China that I mentioned, um, but I don't think we should make too much of it because I suspect it will pass. I think we need to allow a little bit of steam to be uh, to be released uh, in the near term. And uh, once that steam is released, though, I do think we need to expect um, a quiet type of uh, accommodation from the, from the Chinese um, in terms of how you know, how we talk about moving forward as uh, not necessarily an accommodation to every aspect of the ruling, but at least an accommodation to moving away from coercive um, behaviors in the South China Sea and toward um, uh, you know negotiations and peaceful dispute resolution without the kind of conditions that um, that the Chinese have imposed in the past. And and I do think, frankly. Um, both sides should approach the negotiations without specific conditions. Um, everyone is going to approach with, with you know, what they believe is the right outcome in their mind. But if you if you approach negotiations with specific conditions, then really what you're doing is you're shutting down negotiations. So I think negotiation um, without conditions is the the best way forward now in, in in the future. And they can be quiet. They don't have to be they don't have to be public or multilateral. They can be quiet and bilateral. Um, but but uh, that's the best way forward, in my view. What does this mean for the Sinkakus? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, I think it it makes it less likely that those that those islands would be um, deemed as um, uh, having resource zones around them. Um, and frankly, that's been my my perspective all along has been: look, whether they get resource zones or not under the law. Both sides should agree to treat them as if they do not. Why? Because it it reduces the value of those islands um, to to a, a a minor just a minor factor in the overall delimitation and and, uh, and and resolution of the disputes in the East China Sea. Having having reduced the value of those sovereignty the sovereign or the value of sovereignty over those islands, you can therefore reduce the tension um, regarding them. Um, but in this case now, I think the law is, is much clearer that they probably don't deserve um, a, an exclusive economic zone and continental shelf of their own. And so um, so the parties uh, can can uh, 
uh, I think, negotiate on a new basis, uh, or at least they should begin considering how negotiations could move forward on a new basis in that regard. Then they're on Japan's continental shelf? Well, um, so uh, this is a matter of dispute, but um, <laughs> but the the China has actually made a very expansive continental shelf claim in the East China Sea. They they claim that the continental shelf um, extends up to the Ryukyu Trough, which uh, runs along uh, the Ryukyu Islands. It's the uh, I'm sorry, it's the Okinawa Trough, which runs along the Ryukyu Islands, just to the west of those islands. And so, it's I don't know, 85 or 90 percent of the seabed of the of the East China Sea is is claimed by by China. Um, the law really requires the starting point of negotiation of this type of continental shelf to be the median line and then and then negotiating on a number of factors based on that. So either way, I think um, the islands would end up on um, on China's side of the uh, continental shelf. Uh, but that's okay. The law can accommodate, the, even if they're Japanese islands, that the law has ways to accommodate that. So it's it's not a problem. Should we expect future cases from the Vietnamese, the Malaysians, yeah, from Brunei I, I think not. And, and others? I'll, I'll be surprised. Yeah, I'll be surprised if we see them uh, because, in essence, there's nothing more to win um, in in the cases. Um, the as I mentioned, the coastal states have all won except for China. In in that. Um, Vietnam and Malaysia have already put forward their East China, uh, I'm sorry, their South China Sea um, exclusive economic zone claims. They both already were in agreement that the Spratly Islands got no resource zones of their own. <clears throat> and uh, they, so, so their perspective has already won. And, fr and frankly, um, if China doesn't have any historic rights, as we now know they do not, in the South China Sea, then their exclusive economic zones uh, extend well into the Spratlys. That doesn't mean that they own the islands. The islands can essentially be like um, holes in Swiss cheese. They can belong to China with a 12-mile territorial sea, and all of the resource waters around them can belong to the other coastal state. And that's exactly what um, Vietnam and Malaysia put forward as their position in uh, 2008 and 2009. Um, so they've already won, uh, and now that's, it's clear that the Philippines' perspective on this issue is the same as Malaysia and Vietnam's, and, and, and it has won the day as well. So um, there isn't anything really else left to litigate about how to apply the United Nations Convention and the Law of the Sea, except for one thing. And here's if, if there are going to be some, some uh, cases in the future, I would expect them to be more like this. Um, rather than interpreting, you know, how to apply the convention in the South China Sea, if there are further incidents in which Vietnam believes its fishermen are being uh, stopped by and arrested by Chinese vessels or, or Philippine vessels or, or Malaysian or Indonesian vessels, right, then, then there's a whole separate set of cases that can be brought under uh, international law, the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. They're called prompt release um, cases, and I've been a little surprised that no no uh, state has brought these before. But it's essentially um, looking for a, a to, to enjoin the arresting state from holding the vessel. Uh, it, it's a type of case in which there's a, a an automatic acceptance by the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea and a rapid response 
um, to, that, that would require most likely the, the prompt release of the vessel in return for a, a money bond, essentially. Um, so what you might see now is both sides are, are sort of figuring out how to interact with each other. You might see in the future, if, if vessels are arrested or stopped, that sort of thing, you might see this sort of prompt release action in the future. Were you surprised that the court, that, that, the, that the tribunal uh, ruled specifically that the, that the Chinese had violated their obligations under UNCLOSE on building uh, and uh, on, on building where on low tide elevations and on Scarborough Shoal and um, you know in their environmental obligations under UNCLOSE? You know it was a very specific kind of uh, slap on the on the knuckles. Yeah, it really was. Um, to be honest, I was not surprised. Um, the convention, there, there, there are a couple of things that the convention um, was was really um, well developed to deal with, and and some of the driving concerns um, behind the convention had to do with environmental protection and resource management. Those those were really driving factors behind the negotiating. Um, positions of states as they came through with uh, the now what we know as the convention. Another was this sort of um, allocation of rights between the international community and coastal states. How, you know how to do that. Those were two driving um, factors. So the convention is actually really quite detailed um, in its um, uh, responsibilities that states have to um, preserve and protect the environment and to preserve and protect resources. And, um, you know, I think the news reports were, were really quite abundant um, that showed just how much damage there was in, in terms of the coral um, reefs and, and how much um you know, uh, uh, damage to specific uh, species has, has been occasioned by overfishing. Um, you know, I, I suspect that there's plenty of other countries whose practices, uh, they're, they're glad or not uh, being subjected to the same kind of scrutiny. But in this particular case, um, the court came out and said, look, um, damaging this, this amount of uh, coral in the South China Sea is damaging to the entire ecosystem. Damaging to the species is something that you're, you're required to protect. Um, so, so that didn't surprise me. And again, I got to be honest, it did not surprise me that they that they um, came out against the the you know, island building on on what amounts to the Philippine continental shelf, presumably. Um, so, so uh, yeah, the Chinese, I think, um, have taken the position that in fact they did not build on any low tide elevations they did build on on rocks that's probably how they will move forward into the future um, if it's a rock it's theirs it's sovereign if they occupy it nobody you know nobody has a right to challenge their their decision to build it up um, but, but if it's but a low the tide tribunal said that is not the case in certain of the, the buildings well, that's right, but because they were low tide elevations, right? So right. in other words, they were part of the continental shelf as opposed to a rock that's above right. water at high tide. And right. it, where there's a rock that's above water at high tide, um, you still have to abide by the environmental provisions and how you go about um, uh, island building, but you have a general, as a general matter, you have a right to do island building. In the case of a low tide elevation, you don't have the right because that's uh, below water at high tide. That means that's part of the seabed. And seabed belongs to the coastal state. We now know that the coastal state cannot be China. 
so so that's um, you know that's problematic now. Uh, so for those, I think there are two features, Mr. Free and Subi, if I remember correctly, that were built on low tide elevations. And mischief, at least, is considered, I think now you have to consider it as being on the Philippine continental shelf. Um, whereas, whereas the other features, Fiery Cross, for instance, um, I don't think the tribunal has a right to complain except for the environmental provisions, um, the way the, the, the island building proceeded, um, as opposed to the fact of island building. I have another dozen questions, but I know we've got a great group on the phone, so let me, uh, I will intersperse them as we go along, but operator, you can, uh, you can open the floor to questions if there are folks who have any. If not, I will continue with mine. Certainly. Uh, at this time, if you'd like to ask a question on the phone lines, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. And we do have a question from Weha Chen. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you, Steve, for holding this uh, uh, conference call. Peter, I have uh, two questions. One, you know, I mean, I know the ruling is being made, but, but in retrospect, if you think if China had chosen to participate how much do you think the ruling would be different? Second, I mean, obviously the Grand Allison story in the magazine Diplomat two days ago, and I don't know if you read it, but it got kind of a, uh, going viral in the Chinese social media, where he argued uh, that uh, ignoring and the uh, verdict, uh, Beijing is just following the well-established precedent by great powers. And basically argue no permanent member of the Security Council has ever, you know, take seriously. I mean, has always rejected the ruling by the permanent court. And the citing example, of course, you mentioned the Nicaragua case. I mean, the recent Russian case and the UK cases. Thank you. I mean, what's your comment on Grant Allison's article? Thank you. Yeah, I I disagree. Um, just frankly, I just disagree with it. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's a good question. Would the would the ruling be different if China had participated? Um, I, I frankly am in, inclined to believe that some of the jurisdictional issues were a little bit closer call than um, than um, than it might seem on first blush. And um, and so I think had China um, had China participated, they might have had had some way of. I, I mean, I, I know many Chinese lawyers. I know many very intelligent and articulate Chinese lawyers. I think they they could have done a good job at least arguing their case. Um, but but who knows whether the ruling would have been been different or not? I just don't know. As to whether it should uh, be ignored or not, um, I think the bottom line is it cannot be ignored. Um, and I'll come back to the issue of you know how other great powers have behaved, but. Um, I think it just cannot be ignored. Um, my, my view is that um, at least outside of China and Taiwan, this ruling has tremendous. Um, it goes. It goes. It has tremendous legitimacy, right? And that, I the power of the idea of the legitimacy of this is is very strong. And so it's, as I said in my opening remarks, the yardstick against which all parties' behaviors in the South China Sea will now be measured, including and and especially China's. So. Um, so where where parties begin to act outside this um, 
this decision. I think they're going to have to, uh, that they're going to feel international pressure. That's one of the rocks that I was talking about that uh, Xi Jinping and the CCP leadership is now having to face. This, the power of the legitimacy of, of this decision is going to be felt over the long run. And, and it's, it's going to be, I think, a fairly strong one. Um, and, and now in terms of um, ignoring the decision and other great powers, I, I mean, I will say, look, um, there, there's lots of ways in which um, great powers do not have a good record of abiding by international law. But there's always a calculus and there's always a cost. Um, my view is, uh, so here's an example. The United States did, in fact, um, put a very similar kind of case before the International uh, Court of Justice in the Gulf of Maine. And, and in that case, um, Canada won and got even more than it asked for, frankly. And so the United States was, was frustrated by that, but has abided by that, that decision. So look, there are examples of where uh, great powers have done similar things. And I would say India is another very good example. The circumstances are different, I, I acknowledge, but not entirely different. And, uh, and, and India has abided by it. So, so I don't want to say categorically that great powers just um, don't use um, international tribunals and do um, ignore them. On on the other hand, we can point to things like uh, the Nicaragua case, and, and we can certainly point to the disapproval uh, for the uh, 2003 uh, Iraq invasion that that many countries had, and and including including uh, you know Germany and. And and, um, and and France and others who, who who basically suggested to the United States that this was you know not going to be in compliance with international law, and and yet it, it went forward anyway, right? So uh, so here's here's something to to, to think about though, right? Um, are the Germans and the French the best um, uh, uh, examples of uh, you know looking back over the last century of how of how countries should behave in terms of the international community? No, but did that make them wrong when they said that? You know, the Iraqi invasion uh, was a bad idea and probably a violation of international law. Yes. Right. So just because a country doesn't um, always have clean hands doesn't make it wrong <laughs> when it says, look, this is a bad idea. Why? Partly because of the experience of the cost involved in, in, in failing to abide by international law. I think the, the United States certainly uh, paid a reputational cost and it harmed its relations with its um, Central and South American neighbors as a result of the choice it made uh, regarding the Nicaragua decision. And those relations, I think, have not fully recovered even, uh, to be honest. Uh, and I think we, we suffered, um, we, the United States, suffered um, reputational cost, uh, at very least, uh, not, to, not to mention, obviously, all of the issues regarding war. Um, uh, that uh, the United States suffered uh, a cost as a result of, of uh, going into Iraq, despite the best advice of its of its friends. And so, uh, so here's the question now for China: What is the cost that you're willing to pay for um, choosing to go against the the good advice of of, of those who say this is not a good time to be a um, violating or, or going against uh, what is perceived by the rest of the world as a legitimate decision. And, and uh, China has already driven a pretty big wedge between it and many of its Southeast Asian neighbors and is in danger of, of I think, in all honesty, I think a real generational mistake um, that it'll take a long time to heal. If, if, if its neighbors feel it doesn't, that they cannot 
trust China um, to to respect their po point of view and their interests in this particular case. So I think it's important to, to, to recognize that, yes, great powers uh, sometimes do the wrong thing, plain and simple. And those of us who are calling on them to do the right thing aren't necessarily wrong because we come from those great powers. But uh, it's one of those things that um, there is going to be a cost one way or the other that China will pay if it, if it chooses to pursue a confrontational approach to this outcome. Next question, operator. Yes, we'll take our next question from Max Kwok. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, going back to Steve's question on Ituaba slash Taiping Island, uh, the State Department spokesman, Admiral John Kirby, yesterday said the team hasn't finished reading the 500-page award letter and can't say specifics about... Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> right. Uh, I read somewhere about... I read uh, two pages about it, but... My point is, like, I read in at least three instances where it is said that back in January 2010, the U.S. government published a South China Sea map and gazetteer, which said Ituaba slash Taiping is an island, not a rock. So I was wondering which office in the U.S. government came up with this, you know, uh, determination, and which U.S. government website could I find this map and gazetteer? Uh, well, first of all, I'm surprised to hear that. I, I have never... I've never seen such a thing, and, and it would be highly unlike um, uh, the U.S. government to publish anything as being authoritative as to whether uh, Taiping is a rock or an island. Um, it may have been referred to on some map as Taiping Island, but that's uh, in a generic as opposed to a legal sense. Uh, so I would be highly surprised because it's, it, it is it was be uncharacteristic of the way our government has uh, behaved uh, and the policies it has chosen. The office that's responsible is in the State Department, and it's the Office of the Geographer of the United States. Um, that office acts in coordination with um, the Office of uh, Oceans and Polar Affairs, for instance, um, to, to make decisions like this. But um, in the end, um, I, I, I am quite... Uh, I, I can't say positive, but I'm quite certain um, uh, that the United States government has not has attempted not to um, uh, wade into the disagreement about the status of these features. Um, so, so if I were you, I would go to the um, office of the geographer um, at the State Department's website and see what I could locate there and make my inquiries that way. I I don't have any particular contacts for you at the moment to, to offer, but that's where I would go. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. And we'll take our next question from Eric Heyer. Please go ahead. I've really enjoyed the conversation so far. Let me push you further up the coast. We've mentioned Okido Torishima and also Senkaku Daiyu Islands, but let's talk about the uh, Korea-Japan case of Dokdo or Takeshima. What are the implications of this uh, ruling for that dispute? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm unaware, frankly, uh, whether either side uh, claims a exclusive economic zone from Takeshima or Dokto. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they do not. They only claim uh, a 12-mile territorial sea. So, it, so, so if that's the case, if I'm correct, then this ruling would have no implications for um, the Dokto-Takeshima uh, dispute. Um, since that's really a dispute over, over sovereignty, 
Um, this case has nothing to add, nothing to contribute um, uh, as to the question of sovereignty over over other island features. Um, there are quite a few other interesting um, issues uh, at dispute um, between China and South Korea, for instance, as to how to draw the exclusive economic zone boundaries and, and the very complicated um, boundary drawing in the East China Sea that's occasioned by the geography there. Um, but I, I do think this would be one issue that would not be um, decided or, or would not be affected by the case. I think um, I always pronounce it wrong, but it's something like Iodo, uh, I-E-O-D-O. -E um, it's a feature off of South uh, Korea that China and South Korea dispute. But my understanding is that it's it's fully underwater at, 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 at all times um, and certainly at high tide. Therefore, uh, it would be a um, low tide elevation, and therefore, it would only be part of the seabed and not something that could be claimed as a sovereign feature. That was made clear by this case and has been increasingly made clear by the International Court of Justice. So as to that particular feature, I think um, it's now not a matter of sovereignty, but a matter of um, boundary delimitation between China and South Korea that would affect which side of the line um, Iodo um, uh, falls on. Thank you. You're welcome. And once again, as a reminder, if you have a question, you can press star and one on your touchtone telephone. Currently, there are no questions in the queue. So let me then continue with my questions. Yesterday, right. Ambassador Tsui uh, gave an address about uh, the Chinese government's response. And he says, we believe the submission and initiation of this arbitration violates the general practice that arbitration should be premised on states' consent. China made an optional exception declaration back in 2006 in accordance with Article 298 of UNCLOS, which excludes issues like maritime delimitation from such processes. How do you respond to to that and kind of um, the headline of this morning's all of Chinese papers, which is rulings null and void with no binding force? Well, I, I think I have two things to say. The first is um, I think there are a few senators whose votes uh, might be in favor of the Law of the Sea Convention if uh, Ambassador Tsui were correct, because um, – you know, uh, the, the problem for some senators uh, in American ratification is this mandatory dispute resolution process. Um, not not all, but some. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, what they observe, what the senators know is that the um, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea has a mandatory dispute resolution process. And so the consent um, that, that – um, uh, the general practice is premised upon um, is entered into when a party accedes to the convention. It's quite explicit in the convention that the, the dispute resolution procedures are mandatory, they, they are final, and they are binding on the parties, right? So there's no ambiguity about, about those provisions. Additionally, there's no ambiguity in the convention itself, uh, which explicitly says there may be no reservations. Right? You either accept the package or you reject the package because, as I said earlier, the dispute resolution provisions were negotiated as part of it, an integral part of an, an entire package deal. Right, So 
China exercised its sovereign consent when it chose to accept the benefits of participation in the convention. And it has received tremendous benefits. It's got a judge on the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. It has, even this week, it's participating in the International Seabed Authority's annual deliberations. They're going on, I believe it's in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, China is able to participate because, and, and does quite actively participate and receives the benefits of, of, of doing so, including the rights to mine minerals on the, on the seabed, which they are actively pursuing today. Um, and, and so uh, there are many other ways in which China receives the benefits of its, the exercise of its sovereign consent uh, to participate in the convention. And, and, and the, the problem is it's too late now. Or you, the, the China has exercised its sovereign consent. It's received the benefits. And even if it were to withdraw from the convention, there's a provision in the convention that says – you, you, know, you know, you you can't wipe away any of the any of the issues that were pending at the time you withdrew, right? So, so when when a country exercises its sovereign consent, it, it accepts both the benefits and the the burdens of being a party to a convention. And um, despite the active media blitz that China has been putting on um, to undermine the legitimacy of this tribunal's jurisdiction, um, they're they're just flat out wrong. This is not a matter of interpretation or a matter of policy. It's just wrong um, that China uh, that that this. Uh, process violates the general practice uh, premised on states' consent. That consent was given at the time of engaging in the contract. And the exception? Um, those, there are four things that can be accepted, and they all were accepted. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the tribunal had no authority to decide who owns the islands. The tribunal had no authority to decide where the boundary is uh, between different uh, um, zones, right, states' zones. Tribunal has no authority to determine um, the outcome of military activities, um, and in fact, it it um, did not determine whether China was right or wrong to use its military to interfere with Philippine resupply at Second Thomas Shoal, and it has no authority to determine the basis of historic title. Um, it went into a very lengthy discussion about the difference between historic title and China's uh, claim of historic rights, and it, it, it made very clear legal separation between the two, and uh, and, and so it, it found it had jurisdiction on that issue. Um, so the bottom line is there are four things that states can, can accept out. The tri tribunal very carefully analyzed whether any of the issues were uh, touching upon those four topics and found that they were not, except to when they were, they, ch they chose not to exercise their jurisdiction. Do you think China may withdraw? I don't. Um, well, let, let me say I'll be surprised. I mean, who knows? Uh, but I'll, I'll be surprised. The calculus is, is too strong in favor of staying, and here's why. It's no secret that China wants to make some room uh, in international law for its own perspectives. Um, now, at this moment in time, China is on the wrong side of those perspectives. We have a very strong as I said again, I'll say again, the yardstick um, uh, that, that will be perceived as quite legitimate uh, in, in international society. And, and so and China is currently on the wrong side of it. To separate themselves even further would separate themselves even further from having the influence to evolve international uh, law and international affairs according to their interests. So China has chosen um, uh, three, really, other ways to do it. Um, they've chosen to use their domestic legislation to do it. And, and they've kind of run about as far as, as they can with that. 
they've chosen to uh, create some parallel institutions, and they've been somewhat effective um, in in using those parallel institutions to begin to uh, make some changes to uh, international relations and international law. And then third, they've operated from within inside the system to attempt to to uh, have their normative views become more widely accepted in ways in which they are different. And so to um, so that's a pretty important leg that for, for them to stand on at the moment. Um, and and so I will be uh, quite surprised if China uh, f uh, gives it up. Um, and and so. They have been, as I said earlier, quite effective um, operating from inside the UNCLOS system uh, at, at helping to have their perspectives um, given, given airing and, uh, and, and uh, increasing respect. So uh, I don't think that they'll see it as in their interest to isolate themselves from the rulemaking process uh, any more than they are right now. Later in these remarks, he says, what is astonishing is that this tribunal even belittles the declaration of the Code of Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea, the DOC, which was a result, he then goes on to say, of many, many years of, of negotiation. Is that true? Uh, well, I think it found the DOC is not binding. Um, it, it's, it's a political agreement, and that's actually not surprising. Um, there is a definition of what a declaration is, and it's it's a it's a non-binding um, um, non-binding uh, agreement, if you will. So, um, so it, it didn't surprise me entirely that they found it. It's a non-binding political agreement, uh, but in, in fact, they they sort of spent some time saying, look, the whole reason for having a code of conduct is to turn something that is non-binding into something that is binding. Uh, and so that's even further evidence that it's it's not meant to be binding. But I didn't see it as being belittling myself. I actually thought that the um, that the uh, five judges were quite um, respectful of and reinforcing of international law and international processes for peaceful dispute resolution. Uh, you know, there, there's there's room for lots of opinions about whether this. Uh, was a wise process for the Philippines, whether it was a process that is uh, is helpful or harmful uh, to resolve these disputes. Um, I've already said, I think in the short run anyway, there's going to be a certain hardening of positions on, on China's side. Uh, whereas in the long run, I think it will have a more positive effect. But um, but in the end, I think what we can say about the tribunal is that it it reinforced and, uh, and vested itself in um, international dispute resolution processes that are peaceful and, um, and and that bring parties together to discuss the issues in a way where they can be resolved effectively. Um, and uh, so I, I didn't read the DOC as being their, their description of the DOC as being a departure from that. Mm -hmm. I was saying the decision belittled it. L last question, because we only have two minutes left, is ah, okay. in this speech. Um, Ambassador Tsai says, but tensions started to rise about five or six years ago, about the time we began to hear about pivoting to Asia. Mm. In the last few years, disputes intensified, relations strained, and confidence weakened. Obviously, seeing, you know, implicitly saying this is, uh, the, the Americans are behind this. How should we be responding to that and thinking about that? Well, a couple of things. Um, so it's 
it's uh, it's my view that that's a convenient excuse. I think China's um, China's uh, approach to um, their their maritime claims predates uh, any kind of announcement of the pivot. Um, I think you can see it as early as 2008 timeframe, um, and there's some very explicit. Um, uh, uh, statements about, you know, pursuing expansion of China's maritime rights and interests um, more actively and effectively at that time. That's sort of Wei Chuen, Wei Wen um, conversation. And, uh, you know, Wei, Wei Chuen was, was um, were preferred over Wei Wen. So, um, and so I think you can see that change uh, 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 sort of predated the, the uh, pivot. Now, there's a dynamic, though. Every, in, inter, in international relations, there's a dynamic. And so, um, I think the United States uh, does what it needs to do in terms of its security interests, and China does what it needs to do in terms of its own. But it's best if all sides operate in terms of restraint. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of quietly pursuing interests while at the same time um, um, more loudly pursuing um, cooperation is a good thing in my view. Peter, thank you so much for what has been an extremely enlightening uh, one hour. I thank you for your time, and I thank you for your work, and I thank you for participating in the National Committee's Track 2 Dialogue. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for, for joining us today. Thanks, Peter.